Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today's podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Qualcomm. Welcome, everyone. Today we have John Lilly, general partner at Greylock, someone who's seen a trajectory of uh, large startups like Apple and Mozilla, COO, CEO, director of design, senior scientist, and an investor in some of the most amazing companies that we know to date. Thanks for joining us, John. Yeah, thanks for having me, Carlos. I appreciate it. I want to start the way that we always start is getting to know the man from the very beginning. You know, we all know that you went to Stanford, but what we don't know is this interesting story that you were telling me earlier about getting into CS198 with some of the most notable people in Silicon Valley today. Yeah. Yeah. CS198, it's, um, well, <clears throat> so the special thing about Stanford, you know, and I was, I was there a long time ago. I, I graduated in 1993 and I got my master's in 1995. Um, but the special thing about Stanford is how, how many different ways they ask students to run the place. Um, students run, run, run a ton of programs everywhere in the university, I think in a way that's quite different than most uh, universities. And one of those examples is what's called the CS198 program, which was the, the section leader program at Stanford. The way, the way the undergraduate classes, the introductory classes are taught is by lecturers, and these lecturers are aided by a staff of undergrads, sophomores, juniors, seniors that run sections. And so it's the it's interesting because it's the uh, it's the group of computer scientists at Stanford who are kind of most interested in teaching and helping other people understand and helping others and kind of learning. And so, you know, when I first I really liked I was a fan of the group. And the, in fact, the one of the guys that was running the group uh, when I was there was a guy named Astro Teller, who uh, runs Google X now. And I really wanted to, <clears throat> to, to, to do it. I mean, it helped that they paid. <clears throat> excuse me, it helped that it paid money. So I, you know, I was working my way through school and needed money to, to buy, uh, you know, food and books and stuff. And, um, anyway, so I applied and the first time it, I totally got rejected. And so the second time I got in, but it was, it was really pivotal because it, it helped me understand a couple of things. Number one is that teaching was really a good path to really understanding something better. And even when I manage things now, I, I try to take a teaching mindset. But the other is that it, it really uh, highlighted how important it was to figure out who your tribe is, like who the people are you want to be around, who the people you are that you want to work with, whose values you want to share. And the, the people that came out of that program over the years are kind of astonishing. It's like, so Mike Schreffer, uh, who's the CTO of Facebook, and Adam Nash, who's the CEO of Wealthfront, and Marissa Meyer was, a sec- was in the 198 program, and um, Brett Taylor, who ran Clip. Um, it just goes on and on and on. The list is incredible. But it's, it's a really good example of even if you don't get the thing you want the first time, and this has happened a lot to me in my career, um, you know, keep going as long as it's the people who you want to be with and that you aspire to work with. Maybe this is a bit of a loaded question so early in the podcast, but one of the things that comes to mind when it comes to the names that you rolled off is whether or not in order to be able to be someone in Silicon Valley or within venture or within uh, startups, you need to have access to that tribe from the get-go. Um, otherwise, it's almost impossible to penetrate as people's tribes sort of lock down later in life. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good question. I think it's an important one. And, you know, it's a funny one because, like, for the first, call it, 20 years of my life, I never, I didn't feel like I belonged to any sort of 
uh, club. You know, my dad was in the Air Force when I was growing up. He was in Vietnam, and we moved all around the country. And I never really lived in a place longer than about three or four years. And so I get to Stanford, and I really I didn't feel like an insider. I didn't feel like um, I was part of the clique. Although I guess by definition, going to Stanford sort of puts you, puts you into some certain cliques. But I do think that a lot of relationships get formed very early. I think that you're seeing a lot of that um, out of Y Combinator now. I think one of the great things that Y Combinator has done is, you know, especially four or five, six years ago, <clears throat> they really got a lot of their applicants, you know, from out of Silicon Valley to come be here for a while and got them connected in. I think it's a lot of what Seedcamp does. It's really good, which is it brings people in and kind of plugs you in and gives access to um, to the network. So I think that I think there's almost no way to avoid the idea that you know a lot of relationships that are going to be important through lines in your life are established when you're 18, 19, 20. Um, but I do think that uh, I think they're getting more accessible now than they used to be. Uh, you know, podcasts like this I think is a good example of just being more accessible and, you know, giving more access and more insight into how people are working. So yeah. I think on the right, it's on the right, right path, but I think you're right. It's a, it's a tough thing to break into um, and it takes time. Okay. Well, I want to revisit that idea when we come back to sort of your, your, your day-to-day job at Greylock a little later in, in the podcast, particularly cool. in light of some of the investments that you guys have made that have been just so amazing and how much the people and those connections played in, in the selection and, and, sure. um, uh, evaluation of those companies, but yeah. moving on from Stanford, um, walk us through that first job. You know, everybody always struggles with that first job, whether they take a job or they make a job or whether they just kind of get punted into one. What, what, what was that like for you? Yeah, I joined a company that most people won't remember now called Trilogy and it was in 1995. It was started by, um, uh, some, actually some Stanford people who, uh, started a company and then moved to Austin, uh, it was an enterprise software company before we knew that was what it was called. Um, but, you know, mostly I went, it was 80 people when I got there. And, uh, you know, the year and a half I was there, it grew from 80 to 300. And the reason I went there is I noticed other really smart people going there. So uh, Trilogy was one of the first startups to really recruit from, you know, heavily from universities against Microsoft and the other big companies. And, you know, Trilogy was this tiny little company, but they, they recruited really seriously at um, at universities, including Waterloo and CMU. Yeah, I remember and, being at CMU. Then they were trying to recruit uh, some of my friends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they uh, they really went to the top top. They've tried to find the best computer scientists in every school, and then the the friends of the best computer scientists and pull hard on that. And you know, one thing I say about. Uh, pitches now is like you can almost always tell the DNA of a, of a founder within about 15 minutes of a pitch. You can tell whether somebody's been, you know, was, was at Google in their first job or Amazon or Apple or um, just because of the, well, the way that they talk and the way that they think. And Trilogy uh, had a bunch of flaws, which you know, kind of neither here nor there. But what they were really good at was recruiting. They were just really, really good at convincing people to come, and they spent a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to understand what it was going to take to get people there. And thank God for that. I really love recruiting now, and that's been a through line in my career. And I, I think it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been the same if I had gone to. Well, for example, I was an intern at Apple when I was at uh, at Stanford, and then when I after Trilogy, I came back to work at Apple. If I had gone to Apple straight out of school, I don't think I would have learned how to recruit because like people come to you at Apple. And Trilogy, we just learned how to recruit really well. I'm grateful for that. Interesting. And your um, your role of 
within Trilogy was it within design? Yeah, my background, I'm, I was computer science and double E as an electrical engineer as an undergraduate. And my master's was with a guy named Terry Winograd at Stanford who invented a lot of the field of uh, what's called HCI, human computer interaction. And I just loved, I mean, I, I was going to be a chip designer <clears throat> and I just loved like the internals of computers and how they, how to make things fast. And then I had a job at a company called Sun Microsystems, which mostly people won't remember. They got bought by Oracle eventually. And there were some people at Sun that had come over from Apple and they said, look, who cares how fast your computer is if nobody wants to use it? And light bulbs went on for me when uh, this guy, Bob Glass, said that. And then I came. I started being obsessed with how people use technology and how it fits into their lives. And so I did this design curriculum with, Dave, with uh, Terry Winograd, and then David Kelly was also part of that, um, who you know is the founder of IDEO. And so Terry and David, together with Bob Sutton and some other folks, went on to found the the D School at Stanford, the Design School, uh, a few years later. And so a trilogy, the trilogy I started and ran a design group uh, in that. In that, we were the first enterprise software companies to have to have a design group. Would you reckon that the the elements that you pioneered within Trilogy uh, are are ones that you use today to evaluate companies and and their their views on product development and and design? Yeah, well, I mean, look, I mean, part of it is like uh, nobody knows what you mean when you say design. Some some people sometimes people think it means what it looks like or, or how it feels in your hand. Some people think it means like what the information architecture looks like. For us, it was always like, how do you? How do you understand user needs and how do you be intentional about matching those those needs, figuring out what, what people really, truly need and building the right thing for that? And that's, you know, sometimes they call it design. I, I really just call it sort of intentionality around product. And the best founders are intentional around product. Um, so I hear at Greylock when we, when we hear pitches, if they're mobile or web or whatever, you know, the first, the very first thing is, all of us, the partners that are in the room, are, are using the product usually before the meeting. It all starts from product for us and match from product, match between product and um, and problem. And so, for me, that's an expression of design, uh, and that's what I, an expression of what I learned at, at Stanford for sure. I guess I guess what's um, a little bit of black magic in that answer is that you know if you if you deconstruct your answer, it sounds like. There's some black magic there, like, okay, yeah, we use it. Yeah, yeah, we got an opinion and it looks intentional. But if I were trying to sort of explain to a founder, what is going through your head as you're deconstructing that analysis? That's what I'm keen on, on kind of hearing. Yeah. Is there, how do you discern when something is intentional? I mean, these are all words that sound um, like they make sense in, in, in sort of strung along. But then when you try to deconstruct it, it's kind of, you're not really sure what to think as a founder listening. Yeah, well, I mean, so, uh, that's interesting. It, it, they're not all that vague. So, um, you know, the first thing you do is you say, well, what's the problem you're trying to solve? <clears throat> and you're looking for real uh, understanding and real ability to articulate what it is um, that users have and be able to talk about why you think that's the problem they have, whether it's, uh, you know, obser- observation or instinct or what, or what have you. And then, <clears throat> you know, we'll, we'll look at it and play with it and try to try to use our own intuitions about the by the product but but most products you know are not for guys who work on sand hill road and so um so then you have to start looking for what are the signals and what are the what are the re- what's the real data in the environment about whether it works or not you know andy grove who started intel one of my favorite sayings ever is he said uh he wanted his people 
to fight like they were right and listen like they were wrong. So what he meant is that he wanted people to have a strong point of view about what they were doing and what their work was, but he wanted them to be very open to the idea that it was wrong. And if the data, if the data shows your ideas are wrong, you need to be aggressive and, you know, persistent and really dig into things to try to figure out why. So I like to think about investing as, you know, first you have an intuition and you have ideas and you think about the right thing. Then you really look at the data to figure out whether your hypotheses are right or wrong. And then eventually you kind of finish up by saying, now the data, my intuition said this thing, the data said this thing. Let me make sure I really feel good about the team and the partnership that I would have with, with, uh, with the founder. But, but, but I, I don't think intentionality or product market fit is really all that vague. I think that, you know, almost always you can see it in the data and it's almost always about just understanding, um, uh, understanding what the data is saying and, and being honest about it, even if it, it feels bad. Mm. And did you, you know, you worked at Apple after Trilogy and the temptation here is to say, I, I can't talk about it, but maybe, maybe you can, maybe, maybe you can get a little bit out of, out of your time there it, is how that design experience from Trilogy uh, affected your experience there and, and what you picked up from your time at Apple because you were earlier talking about how you can almost tell the culture from somebody uh, from where they worked and just trying to understand what the, the DNA was that you picked up while your time at Apple. Yeah, well, I mean, it's worth mentioning, like I was at Apple during what I affectionately call the shitty years. Um, like in 1994 and like 1997 when I was there, Apple was doing nothing right. Um, you know, the one thing they did right in my time at Apple is they they acquired a, a little company called Next, which a guy named Steve Jobs happened to be running. And, uh, you know, the Next people started coming in and invading Apple. And it was a cultural change overnight. Um, and then and then Steve eventually would take over from a guy named Gil Emilio, who was a CEO that people won't remember now. Um, but and, and I was in a group called the uh, I was in a group called ATG, which is the Advanced Technology Group, which is kind of the. We were working on the next, all the next sets of products for Apple, and um, I was working on the successor to something called HyperCard. And HyperCard, if if you don't know it, was the seminal, amazing piece of software from Apple in probably the late '80s, early '90s that let normal people build um, build applications just by dragging dragging interface around. And I, I I think we still haven't seen anything quite like HyperCard now, and I miss it. Um, and we were trying to build a successor to that called Skate. Called SK8, but I mean a couple of things. I mean the group, the specific group I was in, is called End User Authoring, and you know just how the normal people build build applications. And maybe the big takeaway was that end users don't really author. That was that was a good learning. Um, but the other thing I learned was that there were more people from my tribe that liked building things that people gave a damn about, like building products and like like uh, prioritizing design. And in fact. One when I went to found, went on to found my own company Reactivity, um, one of the guys that I one of my co-founders was from uh, Trilogy and Stanford. One of my founders was from co-founders was from Apple, and one of my co-founders was from Apple and Stanford. So, like this this through line of like picking up people along the way and really treating them well and building your tribe that led directly to you know my startup. Cool. So if we look at the point you made earlier about hiring and culture. 
What would be the one thing that you brought with you into reactivity from Trilogy? What was the one thing that you were 100% certain you did not want to bring to reactivity from Trilogy? What was the uh-huh. one thing that you wanted to bring into reactivity from Apple? And the one thing you did not want to bring that yeah. you saw in that work? You know, because we all kind of bring <laughs> to the table what we experienced. So what, what were those four things that you brought to reactivity? Yeah, I mean, this is super easy. The uh, at Trilogy... Uh, we were great at recruiting and we made sure we were at reactivity too. And so we had some amazing people uh, come through reactivity. I mean, you know, RF Halali, who's a GP at Sequoia now was worked with us at reactivity. Um, Mike Schrepfer, C2 at Facebook did, you know, just the, the list is quite long, you know, Nikhil Singhal, who's VP of product at credit karma. Like the list is quite long of a Brett Taylor actually from Quip too. So, you know, tons of people. So we were really good at recruiting. The thing I did not want to bring from Trilogy was uh, the wilder aspects of the culture. Like Trilogy had a penchant for taking the company to Las Vegas uh, for a weekend and, you know, tons of drinking and tons of just really hard-charging cultural aspects that uh, they always seemed kind of bro to me and never really matched. I, mean, I did them as a 24-year-old, but they just never really felt like, the kind of company I wanted to build. Mm. So for, for Trilogy, great recruiting, wanted to leave a bunch of the wild culture behind, which we did. From Apple, it's easy. Like uh, the thing you want to leave behind is that most things at Apple in in the 1990s never shipped. Like people worked on these beautiful technology temples and never shipped them, which is why Apple got into such trouble. Um, it's not Apple's not like that now. It ships it ships a lot of great stuff now. Um, so I wanted to leave that behind. As for what we wanted to bring, just I think it's the real focus on end user computing, just what end users need and how to build beautiful things for them, beautiful things that work well. So, you know, the emphasis on design and human centered design. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, and that's always like the, the fun bit is, is having had those amazing experiences under your belt when you start reactivity, walk us through the, the journey of reactivity uh, prior to Cisco. Yeah, I mean, well, so reactivity was we were started as an incubator in 1998, and so we were building startup companies that spun out. One would get bought by Sun, and uh, a couple other things happened. In retrospect, it was just the wrong time to start a company that was an incubator because it was hard to start companies, and it, you know, we AWS didn't exist, and so if you wanted to start a startup, you had to go buy a rack space and put servers in the racks. We had we actually had servers and racks in our building with a big internet connection to our building. Um, which is kind of crazy when you're a tiny startup. So, you know, in retrospect, it was hard to hard to run an incubator. Then now you've got things like Y Combinator and Techstars and others that totally make sense in ways that wouldn't have it from a capital perspective. Then mm-hmm. we we started a few companies. We hired a bunch of people. We raised money from Excel from a guy named Mitch Kapor who started Lotus and got a guy named Peter Fenton who's now a partner at Benchmark. And we were kind of moving along, and then the the crash happened in 2000, 2001. And it was pretty obvious pretty quickly that our business didn't make a lot of sense. And so we kind of, we did pivoting before pivoting was cool. And uh, we became an enterprise software company. So I, I stopped being the CEO, I became the CTO. We started, started selling a lot of network security products. It was what it was. We, we did, we, we looked around at a lot of different opportunities, but that's the one we picked. We gave back a bunch of the money to Excel and our other investors and uh, we started building. So we did that for a few years and uh, we eventually sold it to Cisco in 2007. Uh, in the meantime, you know, 2000, I left in end of 2004 and, um, uh, was looking around at what to do next. So were you part of the, the sale process at all? No, I had left the company. So I, that fell on my co-founders. Mm, that fell on your co-founders. And 
Go, walk us through kind of maybe one or two anecdotes that were low points during that reactivity. I mean, you mentioned one was the 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 pivot period, but I guess what yeah. I'm getting, what I would like is is less about sort of the the just sort of the abstract version of it. Yeah, there was a pivot, but like the human battle, maybe if you have one or two anecdotes of reconciliation between you and your co-founders and how you overcame a, maybe a couple of low points during that 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 journey. Yeah, you know, it's uh, an interesting question. You know. We went through a bunch of phases. Like in the in the in the late '90s, everybody thought they could raise money and go public a year later. And we raised a big round, a big Series A from Excel. We raised twenty three million dollars, which even even by today's standards is quite a large A. Um, and so the expectations of the team were quite high. We were hiring great people. We had great investors around the table. Um, you know, we were doing a lot of things, restoring companies. And then we went through this thing where this exercise where we just realized it wasn't going to work. And we gave back the money. We moved the cap table around a little bit. Um, and then things got harder. And because, you know, we started building enterprise software. We were off in the labs you know, trying to build the things that worked. I was taking a lot a lot of fights to see customers because as CTO uh, back then, what it meant mostly is I was selling. And so I remember, you know, I, I flew 250,000 miles one year. And this is not international travel. This is like Detroit and Indianapolis and places. And I remember uh, one Thanksgiving after that, I was at my mom's house in Nashville, and my back totally stopped working. And I remember Thanksgiving where I just I was on my back the whole time. I couldn't I couldn't really walk, and it's because of the flights and the stress, and you know it was a lot. And what I realized thinking that through is that expectations are really hard to reset. So when we started the, the company. Everything looked good. People were counting their do- counting the dollars, counting the success. And then when you when you go through this change, a state change from you know this incubator to being an enterprise software company, people hold on to the old stories and they have a hard time really understanding the new stories. And that there's a lot of um, emotional and cultural baggage you you carry forward. And I was carrying that in all in my own body in a lot of ways. And then I just remember. A little bit after that Thanksgiving where my back was busted, um, you know, I was on some trip, I think probably to Boston at Fidelity, and I realized for the first five or six years of my startup, every time that I had to come through and deliver for my startup or sort of, you know, pull my pull the company through with my co-founders, I had gotten energy from it, and I was excited about it, and I loved it, and then uh, there was this trip to Fidelity, who was our, one of our first customer, um, and I hated it. Uh, and it was this one trip where I was like, man, this feels different. I just fucking hate this. And um, and then I realized that I flipped from getting energy from doing the work to, to costing me energy. And then that, from there, it was pretty easy to decide that I needed to leave. But that, that, I mean, thank God for my co-founders, uh, especially, you know, Brian Roddy, who's a vice president of Cisco now after a couple of different acquisitions. And then, you know, Mike Hansen, who's the, the CTO at um, Oslo which I've invested in, I'm on the board of, because um, they they stayed and they kept it going and they sold Cisco a couple years later. Wow. No, that's that's probably something a lot of founders can relate to, you know, especially when you start internalizing a lot of the stress and it, it represents itself in, in terms of your health. And, you know, I've, yep. I've heard an increasing amount of, of initiatives to help not just physical health uh, deterioration, but also mental health deterioration where, where the two things intersect. Um, and I guess that that served you very well as well as an investor, because there's an empathy there that you bring to the table. 
Um, and if we move from there, from when you left to when you joined Montilla, walk us through kind of that, how, how you joined, you came to join Montilla and, and what was the capacity in which you joined? Yeah. Uh, so after that reactivity experience, I just didn't know what to do. Um, and I took some time off to try to be human again. And like, you know, I think that after you founded a company and been, been at it for a few years, I think there's a detox period that you have to go through. And so there's just three months where I just try, I, it's funny, like I, I just kept running my to-do list and just like I was working. And I think I was basically working, but on just stuff around the house. And I eventually, after about three months, ran out of the list. And so I ran out of things to do. And so I started reading books and kind of screwing around and then started looking for a job. And in 2005, I wanted, I thought I wanted to be an investor and I talked to a bunch of firms and I couldn't quite make the things line up. And then after about six months, I through Mitch Kapoor, uh, I got, kind of got involved with Mozilla a little bit. And this is another one where, uh, you know, I, I showed up and I, Mozilla was maybe 12 people at the time. They had just launched Firefox. You know, they had a couple million users or something. And I went over and I saw the people running it, you know, Mitchell Baker, uh, and who's the chairwoman and, uh, Brendan Ike is CTO and, and Chris Beard who's running marketing. And it was one of these companies where it's a nonprofit. They were just trying to help the internet building this thing that people really love. And I go over there and I say, holy shit, there's so much work to do. There's so much stuff that's not, that's not right yet. And I remember I, I, I left, I went over there and talked for a couple of hours and I left. And again, I was looking to be a VC, but I figured I'd, I'd spend a little time with Mozilla on the side. And I came home and I had so many ideas for them. And so I put it all into a PowerPoint and I sent it back and I got no response for two weeks or really not no response ever from that. And, you know, in, it seems kind of obvious when you say it, like an open source company that's fighting against Microsoft is probably not going to be the kind of company that wants to open your stupid PowerPoint when you send it. And uh, so I just showed up again uh, and I had another great meeting with them and uh, we brainstormed on what they could do and product plan, organization plan and, then I came home and you know, so I was slightly smarter. And instead of doing PowerPoint, I wrote it all in an email and sent it back and <clears throat> got no response from that too. And so then I showed up again and just tried to help. And I, I was kind of on the fence about whether to do it or not. And Mitchell, she tried to, she said, look, you should just come, come here. And I uh, just started showing up and working. I mean, I, I kind of just, it's kind of what I did. I just kind of started showing up and being around a little bit. And then Mitchell said, Hey, do you want to come join? And, I was on the fence. Like Firefox was growing well, and I really loved it. Uh, you know, it's it looked like it had a shot to to make the internet a little healthier than it had been. Because back then, in 2005, the internet was 95, 96 percent Internet Explorer, which sounds crazy, but it was true. Um, and so, uh, you know, at that point, I looked to my mentors and uh, Reed Hoffman, my partner here at Greylock. He and I were talking a lot. He had just started LinkedIn, um, so we had this meeting at the San Francisco airport because our friend Joey Ito was coming through from Narita to somewhere. And so literally in the international terminal of SFO, Reed and Joey and I sat together. So Joey's the director of the media lab now at MIT and Reed of course is, you know, on the board of Microsoft and started LinkedIn has done a couple other things. And, uh, we just sat down and we sat down together and we said, uh, you know, Mozilla really matters. Like the you know, open internet really matters and we can probably make a difference. And so the three of us decided, decided together to join. Um, you know, Joey joined the foundation board and Reed joined the corporation board and I joined as an operator. And 
I gave myself this uh, kind of goofball title, which is like vice president of um, business development and operations. So I was like business guy. So uh, I was kind of like the suit at some level coming in, which <laughs> people call like the these open source like people call me for a little while, even though I you know my background is all technical and nerdy. So that was kind of a dislocation for me, but. Uh, so I joined and we started working on things and about a year later, uh, Mitchell asked me to be COO and be on the board and sort of run the company with her. And then about a year after that, um, she handed the keys to me to be CEO. And so I was, I was CEO for three or four years and, you know, we built Mozilla from, you know, uh, three or 4% market share to 25% market share on the internet. It was something like, um, 450 million users, which makes it probably one of the top 10 products still of all time, you know, but twice the size of Snapchat probably right now. And, um, yeah, it was a special, it was a special ride, a special thing. And, you know, we, I think we broke the back of Microsoft in a, in, in a real way, but, um, you know, it's a long time ago now. So, uh, so was like, yeah, good. Let's, let's explore that, that distinction between COO and CEO a little bit more. Um, the role of the COO can sometimes fall under the long shadow of the CEO who tends to be a lot on stage a lot more and tends to be a lot more the, the sort of the front face of things. Walk us through kind of in your mind, especially now with your Greylock hat on, what do you look for in companies that, that have COOs? How do you know there's a, the, there's a good matching of the COO and the CEO? And when is the company ready for a CEO? Let's just kind of double down on that. Yeah, I think, um, well, there's a lot of ways to answer this question. What I would say is that the COO role is, I found, the most idiosyncratic of roles. So it's all about, like, how do you mind meld with the founder and sort of how do you compliment the founder? How do you sort of fill in all the gaps? And as a result, like, there's some COOs that are like profoundly about go to market. There's some COOs that are about product and engineering. There's some COOs that are internal. There are some COOs that are about fundraising and it's all different. Um, for me, uh, you know, Mitchell was always going to be the heart and soul of the Mozilla project. She founded it. She ran it. She talked about it, but she wasn't as good operationally um, as I think we needed to be. And so that's where I, I came. So I, I focused on hiring and how you build a management team and how you build the operational cadences of the place. And so I learned a lot about how do you build cadence? How do you set up the the pacing of the company so that you can go faster and faster and do more in every time period than you could before? Um, so for us, it was a, a lot about that stuff. You know, I've hired a couple of CEOs more recently and some nonprofits I work with and like Code for America and in a couple of the um, our investments in our, in our portfolio. And it's always about just really understanding the founder because you, you really want the founder to be around the company uh, and engage and, and doing this work that they're the best at as long as they possibly can. And sometimes that's sort of the stuff that's traditionally associated with being a CEO and sometimes it's not. And so you're really just trying to figure out like who can I put here that can really help the founder be great uh, and help really help the, the company be great. And that's as a result, like every COO job I've ever seen is different from each other. Interesting. So th that would imply, therefore, that there, you know, you, you have founder slash CEO meetups and summits where people talk about, you know, challenges like fundraising and hiring and all these kinds of things. But from your answer, it sounds like there's certain elements of COO that are almost all unique. And as a consequence, there's like a, a lack of a, a, um, 
a portability of the skill set. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there are people who are good at being number twos and who kind of kind of morph depending on the job. But but that's that's a good that's a good insight. Like we have CEO get togethers all the time. We have VP engineering get togethers all the time. We have VP marketing get together all the time. It's not like we have a COO group that gets together and 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 talks about the COO work. Because the, the irony is that internally within Sheetcamp we have something we call a COO summit. And huh. uh, and I had never really thought about it the way you had described it, which is interesting because next time we have one, I'll, I'll kind of bring that up as as a concept. But you know what 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 the topics tend to be around is very much what you said, which was building cadence, pacing, onboarding, and a couple of those things. And in in sort of the the hat of uh, Greylock and looking at some of the companies that you've invested in, you know your time at Tumblr and Dropbox and Instagram and some of these other ones. What what have you seen as like the the elements that have allowed you know the CEO or those around him or her to be able to scale that company? Yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of it starts off with like just having built a product that, pe- that people care about at all. So I think a lot of it starts always with building something people give a damn about, and that sounds tried or trivial or whatever, but like it's easy to forget. Once you have something people care about on the consumer side or on the enterprise side, everything else gets a lot easier and you can focus on just making sure people know about it. And then if people know about it, it makes it easier for them to adopt. And so that's the first thing is just building a, a healthy foundation of, of a product that meets user needs. Um, then making sure you build sort of the, what we call go to market, uh, cleanly so you can get the word out and get, uh, and get things in front of a decision maker as quickly as you can. And then it's a lot about like the founder and the COO or, or the really the management team figuring out how to go, go build, uh, go be able to attack the world on their own a little bit. So, you know, when I had a management team in Mozilla, I felt my, like my job was to do whatever the head of marketing needed. Chris Beard, who's now the CEO, he, he when he needed, he ran marketing. It was his job. It's his job to set strategy. We would talk about it. And I needed to help him do it if he needed it. Same thing with Dan Portillo, who runs talent for us now. Uh, you know, he was my VP of talent there. Go figure it out, and I'll help wherever you need. And so I think the, the best organizations hire like are aggressive about going out and getting you know real leaders for each of these roles. And then the leadership, the board, and the CEO, and and, and maybe the COO. Their job is all about trying to figure out how to help them take more and more responsibility. Help these these leaders take more and more responsibility and go faster. And it's, and it's got a little bit of a vague answer, but it's, that's, that's what the work is. Mm. So walk us through the transition from CEO of Mozilla to, you know, where, where you are today. Cause you had mentioned that 2005, you had wanted to become an investor and spent time uh, within Mozilla and learned and supplemented a lot of your skills Walk us through that sort of eventual transition to kind of what you had been looking forward to. Yeah. Well, I'm six years in. I feel like I know some things and a lot of things I don't know. One of the things about venture capital is the cycles are pretty slow. Um, it takes a long time to figure out whether the work you're doing is is right or not. Because, you know, my friend Bryce Roberts, who's at uh, NDVC or OETV right now, you know, he told me, look, it's going to take you four or five years to figure out what your investing style is. And then four or five years after that to figure out whether it's any good or not. And that sounds ridiculous. 
Um, but I find it to be mostly true. Uh, you know, the first year you're just trying to do whatever you can that's at hand and it's possible to do. And so, you know, my first year I did a company called Citrus Lane, which we sold to Care.com a little while ago, and a company called ClearSlide, which is independent still. And then I did Tumblr and Dropbox. Um, and uh, but I, I didn't really know what I was doing. The second year, I think I only did Instagram, I think, in my second year, um, which was a, kind of a funny investment because they sold to Facebook so quickly. Um, but what I would say is that it really did take me three or four years to figure out my own investing style. Um, because like you come in and you're, you're working with partners to invest and you, you see a guy like Reed or a guy like David Z or a guy like Neil Blistery and you're like, man, those guys are amazing. They're doing it this way. How can I be like them? And it takes you two or three years to figure out, I mean, it sounds like an obvious, obvious insight, but then you still realize, oh, I'm not. I'm not trying to be like them and I can't be like them fundamentally. I can learn things from them, but in a partnership, they can do the things that they're good at. You need to do the things you're good at and that makes a good partnership. And so almost by definition, the things that I can make successful are quite different than the things my partners understand and can make successful. So if I, if I take that statement, because it's ironic, I had a chat with a couple of co-founding uh, teams and almost always the answer is exactly what you just said, which is you're not going to outbest your your co-founder. At, you know you're going to be basically a complementary version of, of what's yeah. required for the team. But if I look at in the Greylock team, which is is amazing, and I look at your investments, uh, like as you mentioned, they're also amazing. And there's got to be something that in 2020 hindsight now that you look at uh, and say actually. These are the top five things that has driven my decisions that is different than those of my colleagues. So, for example, um, I know sometimes investors will say, well, I'm a thematic investor. Da, da, da. Uh, I would I would I would go out to say that that as although it's something that is good on a pitch deck for LPs, that there is a lot more subtlety to how people make investments. And I'll pick one, for example, relational. You know, it's like I know the guy who knows the guy and I know that. I trust the guy and that's the reason why. And I might not admit it, but because I know the guy, that's good enough for me. And I might not admit it because I need to justify it with numbers or growth rates or whatever, but really comes down to the guy. So if you had to look through your amazing hits and, and sort of honestly look at it with a 2020 hindsight revisionist history, what are the top five things that you say, you know what, this is, this is kind of pretty much how I make my choices. Yeah. I think that. I mean, I think that I'm not smart enough to do to be a thematic investor. Like, I have ideas over where the world's going. But what I'll tell you is that almost invariably, like, I understand the world through the lens of other smart people. And so almost always it's it's an entrepreneur who's amazing, and he or she leads me to, like, here's the thing that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I, I was, there's an entrepreneur who I wanted to work with for several years who we haven't announced yet, but is in the company's still in stealth, but I, I invested in it about a year ago and I was chasing and chasing and chasing. And, you know, he came and told me, he's like, well, I'm going to work on this. And I'm like, ah, because, because I, I really didn't like the category. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm like, you know, I trust you and I believe in you. And I'm going to follow you here. And it, it's worked out really well so far. So I've just learned to have, I mean, maybe Naval told me this first. It's like, you just have like consumer internet, especially like you just learn this profound humility because like you, you just can't figure stuff out a priori. And so, so betting on betting on people and teams who you want to work with and you feel like you can work with and, and 
who want to go long, who want to build big fundamental companies, uh, whether that's you know hundreds of millions of users or hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, scale really matters. And so for us, it's a match of what can we help with plus who is the leadership team that's building it, especially the founders. You know, plus, are they really interested in building a big foundational company? And it's not, it's not more complicated than that. Hmm. And if you, if you sort of add to that, let's say that that's, you know, 70% of it, maybe 80. What's the remaining 20, 30% of the decision making? So one of the things that founders are almost always scared of whenever they meet investors is, oh, I, do I have enough traction? You know, is this going to be meaningful enough? Uh, what yeah. are the things that you, you maybe gravitate to as a sort of justification for the gut instinct that determines the first 16, 70%. Yeah. Well, you remember the thing I was saying about the very beginning, which was, um, I think you, you start with your intuition and your gut and your own instincts. Then you try to put data. I got call it kind of a data sandwich where mm. you start with your gut. You, you, then you try to disprove any sort of theses you have with data. And then you try to, and then you just make a decision based on how, how it feels after that. Mm. You know, with, you know, the most recent investment I've announced is called Crew, which is, uh, you know, communication for workers who don't get laptops and don't get email addresses at work. So people at restaurants and, and, and retail chains, things like that. And we, we were kind of looking around messaging. So we had kind of a rough thesis. Um, but, you know, we had heard great things about Danny and Brock, the founders. So we went to see him and we loved them in the meeting. And we loved their intuition around customers. We loved how they thought about the problem. And then and their their traction looked good. And then this is actually happening right around the election last year. And Sarah Guo, who's a principal here, and I, we needed to make sure that the market was big enough. And so we, we for that company, we went up and spent time trying to think about what will they pay. And we built, we built up some, some models about how many workers look like this and how do you get to them and what's it going to cost to sell the company. And we just wanted to convince ourselves that it was going to be a big enough market to make it to make a to support a big company. And then we did. So we, you know, we were kind of interested in an area. We our intuition around the founders and product was that we loved them. The data uh, looked like it supported them. And then we spent a bunch of time with Danny and Brock and we gave him a term sheet 10 days later. So um, start to finish that process was 10, 10 days because we had an idea of kind of where we were looking and then uh, we understood how to, to pull as much data. And I guess the part of the data thing was that, you know, we called half a dozen CIOs of huge companies and we said, Hey, what do you think about this? And they gave us, they gave us pluses and minuses and what they thought. And so it was, a, it was a way to get ramped up pretty quickly. One of the advantages of a place like Greylock is that we can call, you know, CIOs of almost any, or, you know, almost an executive, almost any company in, in, in America and they'll, they'll pick up the phone and, and tell us what they think. And that's a, that's a, a great privilege to have. Hmm. So you mentioned something when we were talking about CS198, which was knowing your tribe. And one of the temptations, I think, with, with regards to the, the evaluating things uh, via the founder and the gut is whether or not we as investors, and I'm not picking on you specifically, I'm including myself in this bucket, is we as investors are gravitating towards something that's proximal to our tribe and yep. then justifying it with data rather than looking outside of our tribe or whether we fall victims of our own biases. Yes. And, therefore, and this is something that I guess other people could accuse VCs of. And so that's why I'm throwing out the question to see what your thoughts yep. are on that. Because is the next wave of innovation, global innovation, going to come from people whose 
tribe looks substantially different than those of the Silicon Valley sort of uh, celebrities? Yeah, I think this is an awesome question. And I think it's obviously, cor- you're obviously correct in the implication. So I think people tell I me mean, the data is overwhelming that, um, overwhelming that people tend to hire people who look like them, people tend to hire people who have the same, um, same backgrounds, that kind of stuff. So, uh, I think you, that's why I said, that's why I didn't say you, you have a gut and then you try to look at the data to prove your gut and then you may have another gut call. Like, and fight like you're right, listen like you're wrong. So I think you try to have instincts that are as neutral as you can, recognizing everyone has bias. And then you try to use data to disprove it. Um, you know, I think you can find new stuff by fishing in other ponds. Uh, you know, I think that's important. One of the reasons why we had to do more more diligence on crew than uh, maybe before is because, you know, I don't have any really good, any real honest intuitions about what the life of what the life of somebody who works, you know, in the front of a restaurant is like. Because it's not my life. It, you know, I was when I was growing up before college, but it's not now. And so. I had to be really honest with myself that I just didn't have any good data there. So we had to go look. Um, anyway, so I, I don't think there's a good answer. I think there's, there's lots of reasons to go look for other people, look, look for places to fish. I think you also have to be realistic about what you're, what's possible for you in your life. Like I've got, um, I have an almost five-year-old son and an almost 12-year-old son. Uh, and I'll tell you, uh, it takes a lot of work raising kids. And so I'm trying to be there and present in their lives um, you know, with my wife and that's over, that's an overwhelming, uh, job in addition to, you know, just trying to be as good as I can be with companies here and, uh, you know, my other commitments, including some, some government stuff like Code for America. So, you know, I, uh, I would like to be around in other places more and fishing in other, other ponds, so to speak. Um, but I'm also realistic about what I can be really good at and, and how to and the of that to focus. Yeah, and and that's a key piece of advice I think in general for founders, right? Is is focusing on the areas that you know you can succeed in. So, last question: Which is one vice that you think you should be that should be considered as a virtue? Yeah, I think the ability to ignore stuff is pretty key. You know, my my partner Reed, he was on my board for a while in Mozilla, and I remember this one month where he went totally dark. And I really needed him to sign something or I can't remember what it was. And he just wouldn't respond to my email. And uh, it turns out that was when he was kind of breaking Jeff, Jeff Wiener as the CEO of LinkedIn in retrospect, which I, but I didn't know it then. And, um, and when I look at Reed now and the way he works, he triages like crazy. If you're in the top, if you're in his top two or three priorities, he gives you all the attention in the world. And if you're not, he totally ignores you. And I think that's the way to get things done. Um, I'm not great at it. Like I, I like checking off all the items on my to-do list. I wish I was better at triaging like that. Hmm. That's good advice. Really good advice. Well, with that, thanks for joining us, John, and and hopefully see you soon. Yeah, thanks. You too, Carlos. Have a good summer. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.